This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, with the NFL playing regular season games in London and Jacksonville owner shot Khan on the verge of buying Wembley Stadium and hoping, of course, to move the Super Bowl there, if not the Jags, um, we thought it only fitting to recognize this weekend's Royal Wedding. It happened Saturday with coverage starting at 5 a.m. Eastern and the wedding scheduled for 7. And Gooseman, you live in Dallas where the coverage is an hour earlier, meaning 4 a.m. You said the alarm for this one? No, but I'm sure I'll be up when the nuptials start. How about your wife? You can watch it? That's why I'll be up when the nuptials start. She will be watching. How about you, Ron? What's going to be in the uh, Borges household? Uh, the Borges boys will be at a hockey ring somewhere, which in May is not always my favorite destination. But when compared to the royal wedding of a second-tier prince to a third-rate actress, put on the skates, boys. <laughs> okay, well, let me ask you this. If it were Tom Brady, maybe the greatest quarterback of all time, and Giselle, the top model today, would you be watching? I would not, but I know you would be watching on your knees. <laughs> That's what I always and do when I watch Sunday football games. Tears rolling down your little cheeks. Yeah. Well, guess what? I wouldn't you. be watching. I wouldn't be watching that either. Believe it or not. But uh, if you made him wear that Met Gala jacket again, eh, maybe I would. Hey, Goose, you seen that jacket yet? Yes, I finally saw it. He dressed like a character out of a Johnny Depp movie. <laughs> that's not good. That's you look, not good. You look, you know, you look like you look like Zorro. <laughs> well, that's right. That's a pretty good call. That's a pretty good call. You know, I think for Father's Day, his wife should let him return that to the nearest rodeo. Um, anyway, enough of Tom and Prince Harry. Uh, neither of them is with us today. But we do have former Giants running back Ron Dane, who just earned his degree from the University of Wisconsin. It'll be 18 years after leaving there. We have New England defensive back Jason McCourty as well. And former Hall of Fame voter Randy Kovitz, who's here to name his best Chiefs not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame as our best not in Canton series continues. Plus, we'll profile the life and legacy of former coach Chuck Knox, who passed away last weekend at 86 with former PR director Rick Smith-Goose. You've got to be in heat with the Chiefs next up. Uh, who are you pushing for the Hall of Fame? Johnny Robinson? Best player not in Canton? Johnny Robinson. There you go. Well, I'll second that. And I'll second the guy who said we've got to go to break because he just did. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, I was just going through the news the other day, and I saw one unusual story. <laughs> Completely naked passenger with tackle detained on an Alaskan airline flight from Seattle. True story. <laughs> Talk about wacky. Hey, Ron, uh, just asking, and, and no offense here, but that wasn't you, was it? <laughs> Uh, that was neither me being naked, nor there was any chance of me making that tackle. No, thank you. <laughs> okay. Just wanted to get to the naked truth there. Uh, strange stuff, though, going on with airlines these days, especially if you're flying Southwest. I mean, it, it seems like these things go in cycles. I mean, one month it's United, then it's Delta, now it's the Southwest. Uh, you travel a lot, Rick. Do um, you have any memorable experiences on flights? Yes, sir. Back in the 1970s, I was on the Big 8 Skyriders. We rode a bus to seven of the schools, but we always took a plane to Colorado. So we're flying out of Des Moines, and apparently some rubber came off the tire on takeoff. So oh. when we're landing, 
they didn't know what to expect. They told us, tuck your heads between your legs, grip the seat cushions as we're landing. There were all kinds of emergency vehicles waiting for us. We could see them. I was never so happy to walk off an airplane in my life. (laughs) Well, uh, be honest with me. How nervous were you, honestly? (laughs) When they tell you to put your head between your legs, you know what they're telling you. (laughs) (laughs) Kiss your ass goodbye. Yeah, that's right. I, I do I thought you were going to mention that flight we took after the 1990 AFC Championship game in Buffalo. Remember that when we spent the yes, entire sir. week up in Buffalo? We hit every chicken wing spot in that city. <laughs> and then we go on an NFL charter flight to Tampa after the game. They flew the media. And Ron, you probably remember this. They flew the media in what was virtually an empty charter in the middle of the night. And, and I mean middle. It, we landed, Goose, I think it's something like 2 in the morning Monday. Yeah, and it was a jumbo jet. The, the plane was stocked for about 200 passengers, and there were about 20 of us. We were eating shrimp the whole night. bottles <laughs> of champagne off the plane upon arrival. I think that beer pill really stung the Pro Football Writers Association of America. <laughs> you notice we never had any more charters after championship game. That was unreal. And, of course, just to mention, the reason they did that, because there was no two-week wait, the game was played immediately afterwards the uh, following weekend, so there's a one-week wait, so we went straight down there. That was one of the all-time great flights. And one thing I do remember is you and I caught up on hockey trivia and music trivia all the way there. We're, I think we were two guys in, like, first class or whatever. There's nobody there. And you know, we just I don't kept playing think, all night. I don't think they told the airplane, the airlines, who it was. I think they thought they were chartering the 49ers with the yes. champagne. <laughs> yeah, I mean. How did I miss that flight? One, you guys didn't tip me off on that? How did I miss that? The, the only Jeez. thing that was missing was the caviar. Rick is right. I mean, they had everything on there. Everything wow. on there. Um, well, okay, enough about planes. Uh, last weekend, and just to be serious here now for uh, a couple of minutes, we lost, to me, one of the best head coaches in the NFL when, when Chuck Knox, who was with the Rams, Bills, and Seahawks. As you guys know, he passed away at the age of 86 after a long battle with dementia. And uh, I covered the AFC West when he was in Seattle, guys, and I remember he always had those teams at or near the top of the division. Ron, I know we talk about the Raiders on here all the time, but boy, the Seahawks were tough to beat in those days. Um, and he did that, not just there, he did it in Buffalo. He did it at the Rams, at least the first time he was there. So I guess I'll start with you, Rick, and ask you the usual question, which we ask in times like this. What is Chuck Knox's legacy other than, of course, the ground check philosophy? Well, he was Marty Schottenheimer before Marty Schottenheimer, a great, great football coach who could build a contender quickly but could never get to a Super Bowl. Like Schottenheimer, he never had a John Elway or a Montana or a Roger Staubach taking snaps in offense. He was trying to win a championship with James Harris and Joe Ferguson and Jim Zorn. In the end product, Mm -hmm. he was a coach who finished ninth all-time in victories but no championships. He went uh, as far each season as his running game could take him. And that lack of championships is a bar that's across the door in Canton. Yeah, I mean, look, he's a, he was a great coach. It's kind of sad that, you know, at the end of his life, so many people probably have forgotten him and, and don't really remember uh, how, how great a coach he was. Uh, but for me, uh, there's the sort of two little personal legacies uh, that have always stick me. One is, you're probably the only head coach in history got along with Fred Smurlis. You know, Fred Smurl is a good friend of mine, but boy, he was tough on coaches, especially <laughs> head coaches, but he loved Chuck Knox, and Chuck Knox loved him because they both believed in the same kind of football, which was, let me punch you in the mouth as many times as possible, and if you want to punch me, that's good too. Uh, but, you know, when you looked at Chuck Knox's face, and, and you found out he came from a place called Sewickley, you knew that right. that was not a town near L.A. That was steel country. And he told me a story one time. I said, what was it like growing up in Sewickley, Pennsylvania? He said, well, 
They'd have these dances when you were in high school, but you had to wear a sports coat. So only one of the four of my closest friends had a coat. So he'd wear the sports coat, and he'd go inside the dance, and he'd go up to the window in the bathroom and throw the coat out. Next guy would put the coat on, go in the bathroom, <laughs> throw it out the window, and Chuck would be the last guy in. But he said by the fourth time, the guy's at the door looking at it and say, man, you guys must all shop at the same place. <laughs> well, Ron, I, I, I'm glad Goose mentioned Marty Schottenheimer earlier because I want to ask you the inevitable Hall of Fame question. Um, if we considered Marty Cantonworthy, which we did, I think, in an earlier State of Your Case, what about Chuck Knox? Uh, and, and do you, like Goose, see comparisons between the two? Yeah, no, I do. I, I think they're both uh, trapped, unfortunately, in the, 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 you know, winning the championship, winning the last game of the season has become such a huge focus. You know, there's 31 losers and one winner and all that nonsense, and it's completely untrue, you know. In many ways, to me, he was uh, uh, Parcells before Parcells uh, because he was such a great turnaround artist. Everywhere he went, he, he, he loved the just as Parcells did those rebuilding projects uh and every place he went you know they went from bad teams to playoff teams uh and they went as far as they as they could go but in the end uh as goose points out he didn't have the quarterback uh to really push him over the line and win the championship he was a winner and and he could take a bad situation and make it good and and in most cases nearly great uh marty was the same way but i think in the end they're both going to be haunted by uh bad luck really because you go back and look at some uh, of those playoff games both those guys uh, could have won games, but you know things happen. A guy intercepts the ball. A guy fumbles. You, uh, you know we've been you, doing the you state your, we've been doing the state your cases for almost four years now, and I regret the fact we have not written Chuck Knox yet because he, he certainly deserves discussion. All rise! Here comes the judge. Well, you know what's sad, guys, is a lot of people don't remember Chuck Knox, and, and he was a really, really good head coach. But a lot of people don't remember Rams quarterback Roman Gabriel either, and to me, like Chuck Knox, that's a shame. I mean, he didn't play for Chuck Knox, but if he had, he and Chuck might have made it to a Super Bowl. But Roman Gabriel did play for some pretty good teams. In fact, he had a, a run where he was 41-11-4, four-year run of 41-11-4, and the Rams won two division titles. But that's not all. He was an NFL MVP in 1969, twice led the league in touchdowns. And in 1973, when he'd gone to the Philadelphia Eagles after leaving L.A., he was the NFL's comeback player of the year. Now, at 6'4", Roman was bigger than almost all quarterbacks, but he was resilient, accurate, and he was successful. He started 89 consecutive games, more than any quarterback of that time. His career interceptions percentage is low even by today's standards, and astoundingly low by yesterday's standards, and he won more games than he lost. In fact, one of the more interesting pieces of trivia, guys, about Roman Gabriel is that in his first four years of his career, his first four, 62 to 65, he was 11, 11, and 1. And I know what you're thinking. Yeah, okay, so big deal. Well, actually, it is a big deal because the rest of the Rams quarterbacks, they were combined 427 and 1. <laughs> Another note, the guy scored 22 rushing touchdowns from 1966 to 72. Yeah, so what? Well, so it was more than any other Ram, and his 30 rushing touchdowns during his 16-year career were more than any quarterback anywhere. So the guy could do it all, except, of course, win championships. But that didn't keep Dan Fouts out of Canton. It didn't keep Warren Moon out of Canton either. In fact, it didn't keep Coach George Allen out, and he's the guy who started Roman Gabriel in his first season with the Rams. That was 1966 when they had their first winning year since 58. Now, look, I, I know Roman Gabriel didn't win a playoff game, but he was accurate, he was durable, he could rush, and he could throw. He was a former MVP and someone who made everyone, everyone around him better. And that should count for something. And you know what? I think it should count for an audience with a Hall of Voters, which he deserves, but has not had. 
Clark, you touched on it a little, little earlier. Had <coughs> Chuck Knox, had Roman Gabriel as a quarterback, would both of them be in Canton? That's a good question, Goose, but he did have John Hadel in 73 in L.A., and they went 12-2, and two, and, and Hadel not only is a guy who could be considered Hall of Fame worthy, but he was the league MVP that year, and that's the same year Chuck Knox was also coach of the year. But, you know, Pat Hayden, James Harris, yeah, uh, Roman Gabriel's better. Joe Ferguson, Buffalo, yeah, better. Dave Craig in Seattle, yeah, Roman Gabriel's better. So I, I'd say yes, except for Hadel. Uh, he already had an MVP, and, and he couldn't close the deal with him. I said we're going to revisit the life of Chuck Knox, and we will. We're going to continue right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we mentioned that we've talked more about former head coach Chuck Knox, who passed away last weekend at the age of 86, and we will. Now, that's because we have someone with us who knew Chuck well, working alongside him his last three years as Rams head coach, and that's former Chargers and Rams PR director, Rick Smith, whom I was fortunate enough to work with in San Diego in the 1980s. Rick, thanks so much for joining us. Clark, I just remember you as being very tenacious when you <laughs> covered the Chargers. <laughs> yeah, I remember when I did a story at J.J. Jefferson, and he asked me, is there a statute of limitations on this thing? <laughs> I went, uh, no, I don't think so. Anyway, uh, thanks, Rick. First of all, as, as someone who worked with Chuck Knox, what do you think of when you hear his name? When I mention Chuck Knox to you, what, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, that he was accessible for a PR guy. And uh, he was cordial most of the time. And he just, he, he knew, he had a feel for everything that went on. I mean, he, he knew what a PR guy's job was. And, uh, of course, he was a great head coach. He had 180-some victories in his career. But Chuck was Chuck was pretty easygoing, and uh, the funny thing is, uh, Mark Wicker, a terrific writer, once once commented that you know Chuck in his interviews uh, had had, revi- had refined dullness to an art form, <laughs> and I, I often think that maybe Bill Belichick stole a page from Chuck Chuck Knox's playbook. <laughs> <laughs> it might have been Mark who wrote one time. He was available for no comment. Do <laughs> um, you have a favorite memory or anecdote about Chuck? Well, I just remember that uh, when we when I, we were with the Chargers and he came from, and he was at Buffalo, and we had the Fouts Air Coriel team, and Buffalo was just coming around. Uh, but Chuck was great at rebuilding teams. They had upset us in the fifth week of the season, and uh, if Ron Smith hadn't caught a touchdown pass with about two minutes to go, uh, we would have been knocked out of the playoffs by Buffalo. And then Chuck left Buffalo, and he went to Seattle, and he just he owned the Chargers. And I met him during the spring when the AFC West coaches would have a, uh, a, a two- or three-day meeting in San Diego. And and I just found that he was a heck of a guy. I mean, I, I thought he was this kind of hard-ass guy. I'd, I'd watched him when he coached the Rams in, in L.A., and I just thought he was kind of a hard-nosed guy. And basically, Chuck was uh, very easy to get along with. But a lot of the, the memories I have of Chuck, I'm not sure that I should repeat them on uh, 
uh, on the radio, and not that there was anything uh, totally untoward, but um, uh, I'll just leave it go at that. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs> Rick, you mentioned those AFC West meetings uh, going to Pernicanos for those pork chops. Oh. Oh. You know, Chuck and Hannafin came to Bob Springer, who was the PR guy for the Chiefs, and said, look, us coaches don't get together that often. Why don't you rent us a limousine, and we'll meet all of you writers at Pernicano's. <laughs> and uh, we, kept Perna- we kept Pernicano in business uh, in, that, in that kind of slow time of the year for him because all of those coaches, uh, they loved Pernicano's uh, restaurant, and they also loved uh, – the various uh, spirits and and uh, drinks that he served. <laughs> so did we. Hey, Rick, you caught Chuck at the end of his career, but you were opposite him when you were with the Chargers. He was in Seattle. What was your perspective of Chuck from a distance, and did it jibe with what you learned later? No, like I said, you know, you know, Goose. I thought that I thought that he was this kind of taciturn, no nonsense kind of a you know. Hard-nosed Western Pennsylvania type guy who'd been an offensive line coach as an assistant, you know, when he was with the Jets and Joe Namath and them. But then when he came to the Rams, it was late in his career, and uh, he was just he was just very accessible, uh, easy to deal with. I mean, he'd have his moments, and he'd call you in, and when he was upset about something, but you just you, you just felt very easy about it. I remember one time when uh, the Rams were trying to sign Shane Conlon as a uh, it was kind of a, a, a high price free agent, and Brian Golden, a guy on the radio in L.A., said, "If the Rams sign uh, Con- uh, Conlon, I'll eat the newspaper." And so uh, we did sign Conlon, and I got Chuck to go with me 40 miles up to L.A. to meet Brian and uh, and and watch Brian actually eat a newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't do that today, Rick, because there are no newspapers. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, you know, Brian put a little Tabasco and some uh, salsa <laughs> on it, and Chuck got, a, Chuck got a big kick out of it, and... And and it was a nice it was a nice day to spend with your head coach away from the fire. Rick Chuck, of course, didn't win a Super Bowl, but in your mind, was he a Hall of Fame coach? Well, I think he is, and I think Coriel is, and because they didn't win Super Bowls, and because Coriel didn't have a good playoff record, I don't know if he'll ever get in. And uh, you know, that's become a it seemed to become it seems that it's become a very uh, important criteria for a coach you know Coriel and and changed the game in his way and Knox Knox coached football you know they called him ground Chuck because he he, he, he loved the ground game but you know wherever he went except in his last tour with the Rams Chuck won and won big yeah, yeah no that's that's for sure looking back what do you see as his greatest achievement you know as you say he's was, he was a bit like parcells they're both kind of rebuilding uh geniuses which one of those franchises do you think he did the best job at? i would i would think uh with yeah i would think with seattle they were floundering and um we were still a pretty good team we went up there and he beat us uh he took you know he took over the afc west uh with seattle 
And uh, he also, uh, he was one of the few guys that have won big at Buffalo because he took Buffalo to the championship in the AFC East. Uh, and then when he got hired by the Rams, actually in his first head job, the Rams hadn't done anything for a few years, and Chuck had a great record. But because he his offense wasn't flashy enough for Carol Rosenblum, the coach, and uh, despite you know three or four uh, division championships in his time there, uh, maybe it was four or five division championships. Uh, he moved on. He moved on. He sensed that. Uh, his style of play wasn't going to be uh, what what Rosenblum and the Hollywood crowd wanted, but gee whiz, I mean he he won big in L.A. Also, you know he was also known. You, you know I got to know him a bit. He's he was good friends with my friend Will McDonough, and through him I got to know Chuck pretty good well. Good man. And yeah, and, and, you know Chuck had all those Noxisms. You know the one I always remember the most is. Make what you oh, do yeah. speak so well. There's yeah. no need to hear what you say. Uh, you know, did you, did you hear a lot of those Noxisms? Uh, well, when, the one that sticks out with me is when Chuck was not very uh, impressed with someone's character, or if he'd had some problems. He says that guy's got flies all over him. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I remember. That's what I remember most. Uh, he had a, he had several of those though. Like you're right, Ron. <laughs> I want to ask you a question, sort of follow up on Goose's. He was asking about whether you think he's worthy of, of, of the Hall of Fame. Um, do you think if he had gotten to a Super Bowl or had he won at least one, do you think he'd be in Canton, Rick? Because as you said, it seems to be a measuring stick for quarterbacks and coaches. And, and not having gotten there does penalize Coriel, and it probably does penalize Chuck Knox as it does Marty Schottenheimer. You know, you know. Chuck won, I think, uh, it was about 185 games or somewhere in there. And he won playoff games and he won division championships. No, he didn't get to the Super Bowl. One year uh, they were on the cusp in Minnesota and Tom Mack moved at the snap and they are on the one-yard line and they, they, they didn't score, which would have put them ahead and won the game and probably sent them to the Super Bowl. Uh, you know... I don't know. That seems to be the the, the way things are going now, and um, I think I think Chuck definitely deserved to be in the Super Bowl, and of course I think Coriel did too. Mm-hmm. One last thing, Rick. Uh, we got about a minute left here. You know, he Chuck had some trouble with Carol Rosenblum in L.A. He had some trouble with Ralph Wilson in Buffalo. Um, was he a guy who was tough on owners, or, or was he just dealing with some owners who were tough on him? Well, he once called a, uh, I believe, uh, he called an executive Buffalo head, uh, <laughs> which didn't go over too well. Uh, <laughs> I won't say who that was, but... Uh, Can't imagine um, why. <laughs> you know, I'm not... You know, the Rams in, 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 in L.A., I think it was Georgia Frontieri who wanted to hire Chuck. She also was the one who wanted to hire Dick Vermeil, and who was who was uh, you know took us to the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure that that Chuck had everybody on his side when he came to the Rams, mm-hmm. and I, I never I never I never uh, was part of any you know thing where he was you know having outward problems with him. But 
the thing that the, the Ram thing, it didn't seem to, you know, after the second year, it seemed like, uh, you know, it, it wasn't going to go anywhere, and I think Chuck felt that way. Rick Smith, thanks so much for the time and the stories. Really enjoyed it, as always. Thanks, Rick. Hey, good to talk to you guys. Uh, Come on back. We're begging you. Come on back. (laughs) Yeah, come on back. Thanks, Rick. That's former Chargers and Rams PR director Rick Smith. Up next, former Heisman Trophy winner Ron Dane. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, one of the best stories what happened last week in Madison, Wisconsin, and what happened is the former Giants running back and Heisman Trophy winner, Ron Dane, got his degree, graduating from the university 18 years after leaving for the NFL. Now, including bowl games, Ron Dane is the all-time NCAA Division I rushing leader. But he's not here today to talk about that. He's here to address another of the big moments of his life, and it didn't happen on a football field. Ron, first of all, congratulations. And, and second, thanks so much for joining us. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, man. It's, it's just crazy. Uh, growing up and going to, uh, coming through school, my first thing when I was young growing up was, I'm going straight to the NFL, so if I get big enough, I'm going straight, like, I never knew, like, when I went to high school, I never knew about the Heisman. I never knew about no college teams. I didn't have no favorite college teams. You know, the only, like, because I'm from Virginia, and the only school we have was Liberty. So, um, Lynchburg, Virginia, Lynchburg. So, Liberty was there. Yeah. They weren't known for football. So, you know, my first goal was just to get to the beach. You know, like, oh, you got to go, you got to go to school to make it there? I'm <laughs> You know, it's, it's funny. You know, I, went I figured it out the hard way. Well, I went down to Liberty when Sam Ritigliano was the coach. They were pretty good then. He was just starting the program. They were pretty good. When I left, I was young. I was only like, when I left from Virginia, I was like seven, eight, nine, you know, seven or eight. Um, so when I was yeah. talking, about your, you're talking about your degree here. Um, when and why did you decide to complete it? I mean, you did it 18 years later, but you got it done. Well, uh, my kids are in school, and I, I wanted to get it done before they got to go to college, but my daughter is in college now. She, she'll be a junior coming up this year. And then my son is going into college, and he'll be a freshman. So I just wanted to get my degree before my kids got done. You know, I show them that, you know, all work pays off. You know, uh, school is a big deal now, you know. Back then, it was it was a big deal, but it ain't like it is now. So, well, I, I mentioned I mentioned you're the all-time NCAA Division One rushing leader to count ball games, which we do. Um, you won a Heisman. You're in the Wisconsin Madison Athletic Hall of Fame. You're in the Rose Bowl Hall of Fame. You're a two-time Rose Bowl MVP and Big Ten Player of the Year. So, where does the college degree rank in terms of individual accomplishments? I would have to say that's probably one of the top. Um, that's probably one of my highest achievements just because of the fact that uh, 
Like, I, I came back when I was playing in the league, and I tried it a couple times. I don't have to do this, so it don't matter, you know, but just getting it and, you know, like, just going back to school, even though I was older than some of my teachers and professors, that was cool, too. That was kind of neat. I'm like, hey, what's up, Rick? You're like, hey, Mr. Dean. I'm like, oh, that sounds kind of different. <laughs> you know, you're a professor. <laughs> you know, you're a professor, and you call me Mr. Dean. I'm calling you Rick. I'm like, okay, no problem. But, you know, I, I kind of had to get used to that, like being the oldest guy in class and stuff. But uh, this is one of the top things. I had my wife there, Courtney. She was, she was on a... She was the one that stayed on me the most. Cause I, I would go to sleep at night around nine or ten. Once the baby went to sleep, and she'd be like, "Yep, you know we got a test. Let's go." Wake me right up. Hey, let's go, buddy. You got a test. I'm like, "Test? Let's go. You got a test right now." So it's good about twelve o'clock. You know. <laughs> yeah, my wife. She she pushed me probably the hardest to, to finish off, without a doubt. Did you want? Uh finish up online did you, did you sit in any classrooms or yeah yeah i had to go i had to go down the, um I, I, I did um classes online i did some classes online but i had to do a lot you know down there at the stadium you know down at the university uh-huh. now what what is your degree in and how can you now put it to work for yourself um i'm not exactly sure but it's uh black history you know but you know, I want to, you know, kind of dwell on it because my daughter is in politics and she want to get really into stuff like that. And so maybe I can help her be able to get her a job coming out of the palace and things like that. She she has like a year and a half list. So just something that I can be able to help my family and to adjust and, you know, to be able to do it. Would, would you consider teaching? Uh, no, I don't want to teach, but like this, like if I'm around people, I can teach you like that, but I don't want to be like, I have to be there every day to teach you, so I'm going like my kids, like I don't, I see them a lot, but I don't see them every day, but they learn and I teach them, so I don't think I could be a normal teacher or even a coach, just because of the fact that, you know, the kids now, you know, uh, university or Big grown kids. If you turn eighteen, it's like, what should I coach? You? Like, what? Let's go outside. <laughs> you know, you, know, you can talk to them like that now, but you know, so it's, it's a little different. Ron, what was the hardest part of going back, and was it difficult the uh, that first time you had to walk into a college classroom again? And as you point out, you're, you're older than the teacher, and you're older than all the students. Was that hard to be that first day when you had to walk in there? Yeah, yeah, it was tough. Um, well, at first I kind of just walked in just to kind of see and see the people. And my first class was like the class that I had with a lot of athletes. So, you know, when we were young, we all sat together, too. So I'm like, oh, that's a bad idea, buddy. I shouldn't all be sitting together. <laughs> I mean, you can tell the whole football team all in the corner. I'm like, all right, I want to sit down here to the bottom right, you know. You don't want to sit the whole crew, so then everybody can picture y'all out. And then on Texas Day, everybody spurred out. Like, wow. Every day, y'all was all together. Everybody's like, oh, you're just bring attention to yourself. So, you know, um, a lot of the guys, because they're young, 
and they all sit together. I'm like, you know, don't sit together, spread out, man, meet people. You know your teammates already? Why do you all meet people? Get to know people. Maybe they can help you in another class. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that I like. Hey, you can sit around and sit with your boys. We all know the same thing. Rather than moving around and meet people that know a lot of different things that might be able to help you in a couple of other classes, too. Sure. You know, so, you know, just being young, you don't, you don't think about that until you get older. That's the kind of stuff that I talk to the young guys about. You don't need to be around the whole team. Yeah, you pull yourself off to the side, grab your seat. Do you look back now, or did you find yourself looking back, uh, uh, you know, prior to making this decision, wishing you had... You know, done things a little differently when you were in school, or maybe spent more time, like you said, with different types of kids. And um. yep. well, it was good for me, but I'm different than a lot of athletes because of the fact that I won the Heisman. I got to meet so many different people that, like, I still got friends that I went to school with that live in New York. And they call me like, "Hey, hello, we got boxes. Come quick, watch the Giants play." And I'm like, "What? What are you in?" And da 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 da. But a lot of my friends and guys that I went to school with don't have the opportunity. They don't have the opportunity to come back to school and, you know, get a degree and do your thing because of the fact, you know, you didn't win the Heisman. So I'm like, I'm super blessed. The Heisman is super for me. I love the Heisman. I love my teammates that help me win it. I love the staff. I love all the coaching people that help. Like, you know, it's like, my hardest day. I don't really have a hard day, you know. Unless <laughs> my kids ain't doing good. Unless my kids ain't doing good. <laughs> hey, Ron, I've got one more question about the, the, the degree. Who is happier about it, you or your family? And, and how did you guys uh, celebrate it? When, when you first got it, how did, uh, you, how did you guys celebrate it? Well, it was raining that day, right? So it was raining, so we just got one piece of meal, you know, and it was like soaked in the rain, you know, like the... FedEx package was just sitting in the ring floating. I'm like, open the door and I open it up, and it's like a little wet, but it's not wet, you know. So when I crack it open, it's my degree. I'm like, I almost passed out right there. So I'm like, my degree is wet, like, but it wasn't wet, but the paper around it was wet. I pulled it out. Of course, I ran upstairs and, you know, I had to go. My wife was sitting there. She's like, what is that? I'm like, that's my degree. Took pictures of everything right online. I was so excited. I was super hyped. You know, after that, like a lot of my, all, like my kids, all, they all called me and texted me and said, hey, congrats, dude, and da, 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 and everything. So that was the biggest part of showing that I had to come back to get it, but you can get it while you there. Go get it. You know, especially my son now, like, when I left, like, I left after four years, I didn't have my degree, but I only did enough to be able to play my senior year, so, um, you know, that kind of hurt me, so I had my degree, so I could come back, and I had to go to school for it, so, mm-hmm. don't do that, I, you know, I wouldn't recommend that to any, <laughs> any of the kids, any of the athletes, without a doubt. Ron, how many, how many get credit, degree, get it. Ron, how many credits did you leave Wisconsin with? How many credits did you have to earn after to get the degree? Well, I would probably say somewhere around about you know, 60, maybe 60 to 70. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, so like I did two years of school. 
Did all that knockdown summer school or um, yeah, so maybe not, maybe a little less, but I was up there though. It was like 40, 50, 60 in, in that range. Do you, do you find it ironic that you were enshrined in the College Football Hall of Fame before you graduated from college? <laughs> I never think about that. <laughs> I never think about that. That's a good question. So I got to think about that question. I got to I got to get back to you on that one. <laughs> I got to get back to you on that one, boy. Yeah. That's a that's a good one. I never, I never thought about that. <laughs> ah, that's a good one. Mm. I'm gonna say that to a couple people now. Oh, I can't wait to use that. I got to use that. <laughs> hey, now, Brian, sure. What was what was your greatest moment as a football player? High school, college, NFL. What was your greatest moment? Um, I would probably say once I broke the the Russian record, NCAA Russian record, and um, after um, after the thing, after the event, and everything, had all the white towels around the stadium. I mean, it, this was after the game. It was all the white towels around the stadium. They all had thirty three. I mean, like all the way around the stadium. And we held about eighty thousand people. So. Everybody had towels up around the stadium, and it was just like amazing. You know, so that was probably once I broke the record. Yeah, that was probably the biggest moment. Probably not my biggest game, but that was probably the biggest moment for me. Now you've got obviously you've got a half a house full of trophies. You got the Heisman Trophy. You got all. I'm sure you got a million other awards and trophies and things. Um, where are you going to put that diploma? Is it going to be right there in the middle on top of your Heisman Trophy or next to it? Or look, where, do you, where are you going to put look, it? I, I, I ordered a special frame, buddy. I got a frame coming in. I just got the piece of paper sitting right now. I'm just waiting for my frame to come in. I will put it online so people will get to see it. I can't wait. I got a big time frame for it. A little piece of paper, but I got a big time frame. <laughs> Well, Ron Dane, yeah. thanks so much for the time. And again, congratulations on getting your college degree. And good luck on getting that special frame. Uh, no problem. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me, and I appreciate it. Thank you. You got it. The former running back and Heisman Trophy winner, Ron Dane, up next, the two minute drill. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, Robert, we have about two minutes left, so you know that drill. Get it started. That's the two-minute warning. Thanks. That means we're on to the two-minute drill with Ron asking this week's question. So, Ronnie, let's get started. UFC has announced a June 12 fight between disgraced former All-Pro defensive end Greg Hardy and little-known ex-NFL player Austin Lane, who's 3-0 in UFC with two KOs. Who are you rooting to be knocked out in this fight? Shame on you, Ron. Aren't you the guy who preaches about concussions? Now you're asking me to pick a knockout? <laughs> <laughs> Easy, Ron. It's Hardy. See how the other half lives or survives. His ex-girlfriend be there cheering for Austin Lane. Uh, after 14 seasons, defensive back D'Angelo Hall retired this week, saying injuries had prevented him from a Hall of Fame career, but he insists he's going to find another way to get a gold jacket. How's he going to do that? Go work for Hager. Go to Men's Warehouse. George Zimmer will find him one. I guarantee it. <laughs> Would you have traded wide receiver Mar Davis Bryant to the Raiders if you ran the Steelers? If you own a record six Lombardi trophies like the Steelers, I trust their judgment. Yeah, I would have sent him anywhere I could get a third-round pick in return, Ron, so yes. 
Speaking of the Steelers, quarterback Ben Roethlisberger texted rookie quarterback Mason Rudolph wishing him good luck at rookie camp. How much luck is Big Ben really wishing his new rival? When Roethlisberger texted break a leg, Rudolph didn't know if he was serious or not. <laughs> How much luck? Uh, plenty, Ron. As in, good luck carrying my pads this summer in the throw. <laughs> Tyrod Taylor after you to win the quarterback job over number one pick Baker Mayfield in Cleveland. Stay on you Jackson's good side. Show up on Sunday. What does he have to do to keep that job after a year? Pray. <laughs> Find those Polaroids on the owner. <laughs> Bird Warner recently said at 47 he volunteered to a, a coaching friend last season to make a one-year comeback. Would you hire him? As a courtesy to his wife and family? No. Yes, I would, but as a QB coach, not a QB. Supreme Court ruled this week 7-2 to to allow sports betting around the country. How soon before a coach gets busted fixing a prop bet? This preseason. What the heck's a prop bet? The odds on the next Southwest prop making the news? That's the end of it. That's the end of our first hour, but stay where you are. We have New England defensive back Jason McCourty, the best Kansas City Chiefs not in Canton, and Dr. Data, coming up in the second hour. You're listening to Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network. I'm Clark, along with Rick and Ron. And I'm sure you guys saw that the Supreme Court this week, okay, nationwide sports betting, and that the NFL intends to lobby Congress for a lot of protects its interests. Now, it talks about integrity of the game, but uh, Ron, having spent much of your career in Las Vegas covering the fights, you know something about sports gambling. First of all, let's be honest here. Um, the league's interests are monetary, so what are they talking about here? Because when they talk about gambling interfering with, quote, the integrity of the game, isn't this the same league whose owners embrace fantasy football gambling sites like DraftKings.com? So I guess my question is, what's NFL's complaint? They're not getting cut in for the cash. That's their complaint. <laughs> Back when Burt Bell and Pete Rosell were commissioned, they had a legitimate point of view, and they stood for it. But once the owners like Bob Kraft and Jerry Jones not only embraced but invested in DraftKings and FanDuel, that went out the window. And now the league has embraced them as paying advertisers, claiming fantasy is a game of skill. This is typical NFL 2018 hypocrisy, and the public will see through it. Spare me. Please. Well. Goose, I saw the NFL statement on this, and it said it wants a quote-unquote regulatory framework from Congress to protect its interests. Do you have any suggestions? Yeah, no betting stalls in the stadiums. Those lines would be longer than those for the concession stores <laughs> and bathrooms. That would be great. That would be great. be great. I love the well, idea. <laughs> Ron, I know you always have suggestions. What do you got here? Well, this is a suggestion that, that I think these politicians should give the NFL, which comes from my Aunt Olive, who always used to say when she didn't like things, Go pound tar. I never knew what that meant, but I knew it wasn't good. So that's what the NFL should do. Go pound tar. <laughs> okay. Well, they're, apparently they're starting sports betting, I guess, this month in New Jersey. Bottom line here, guys. I'll start with you, Goose. How does this impact the NFL? I think it makes the NFL more popular than ever. It's the easiest sports to bet. Yep. Easier than baseball, yep. basketball, and hockey because there are so few games. And most of the games, at least games through November, are meaningful. Well, I think the one thing they have to worry about is the, is the minute somebody's smart enough to realize, hey, we could beat a prop bet like those prop bets they got right now for uh, rookie quarterbacks starting. Lamar Jackson is half a game. 
I'd start him in game one, bet the house on it, and then retire from football. <laughs> hey, Ron, all I know is the surest bet right now, not Lamar Jackson. we got to go to commercial, most because we're out of time. Up next, Dr. Data with the cost of doing business with Des Bryant. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Ron and I used to work in Baltimore covering football. That was uh, long before the Ravens came to town. In fact, it was back in the 1980s and early 1980s. But um, now that the Ravens are there and they're to say, I'm talking about Baltimore, I, I think it's probably a good idea to congratulate their owner, Steve Bashotti, for doing something that's rare these days. <laughs> Been watching an Orioles victory because they ain't winning many games, and, and that's reducing concession prices at the stadium. Now, an agreement is in place with an announcement soon that the Ravens will do what Arthur Blank and the Falcons did last year with their new stadium. And you guys remember that? It's actually acting in the best interest of the fan. Yes, the fan by cutting prices at concession stands. Pretty decent deal. Well, yeah, it is, and it's good news for for fans. Although my fear is that if they cut those prices by fifty percent. They'd still be 25% overpriced. I was at a game not too long ago. I bought two bottles of water. It cost me 8 bucks. We got to my seat. My son said to me, Dad, we could have drilled for water cheaper than this. Yeah. Yeah, but, Ron, they can charge whatever they want. It's a captive audience. You go to Yankee Stadium, it's brutal what they're charging for hot dogs. And yet people are buying them because they're the only game in town. You can't go outside the stadium. You just got to buy what you can there. Plus, they shake you down on the way in. And if you got a little sandwich in your pocket, they throw you yeah, around. that's right. That's absolutely right. I, I was not allowed to bring in a backpack and a bottle of water. Unbelievable. I, Goose, I will say this. I, I do think this is exemplary, um, but I'm not sure it's all about benevolence. Um, I think there's probably something about making the in-stadium experience more attractive, too, by luring fans you know, out of their living rooms where there are no parking costs, concession stands, seat ticket prices, whatever, and getting them into the stadium at somewhat reduced prices at the concession stands, at least. Look, the NFL is making money hand over fist in parking. The Cowboys charge $100 and up to park in their stadium lots. So why not cut? Why not cut the fans a break and knock a few bucks off the cost of a hot dog and a soft drink? You know, with the increasing competition from the big screen TVs, the NFL teams must stop trying to gouge the ticket-buying public at every opportunity. So hopefully the Falcons and Ravens will start a trend. Wow. Did you say $100? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Ron, what they charge When's the last time you went to a game? When's the last time you paid to go to a game? I don't. Go, I go see winning teams. I don't go see the Cowboys, Rick. <laughs> I go to Foxborough. What did they charge in Foxborough, Ron? Seventy-five bucks. Oh. There you go. See, Poppers. there you go. Poppers. <laughs> well, um, of course, cool. Steve Bashotti isn't the only owner in the news this week. So it's somebody named David Tepper, and I know you say, "What? Who? Never heard of him, right?" You, you will, and you're going to, because he signed papers. To assume ownership of the Carolina Panthers from Jerry Richardson. Now, David Tepper is a minority owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, and he had to first divest himself from that franchise before he could take over another. And, Goose, all I can say is I hope this works out better for Carolina than it did for Cleveland with the last Steelers minority owner who took over a ball club. Clark, that's why the Rooney family keeps them as minority owners, very minority. They can keep their hand on the till but leave any fingerprints off the product. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a, Jimmy Haslam is the guy we're talking about, and Goose, that didn't go over very well. And, Ron, I'll tell you, Jimmy Haslam, you go to Cleveland, they'll say Jimmy Haslam rhymes with train wreck there. 
<laughs> well, as I understand it, uh, Tepper's a hedge fund guy who got rich by becoming an expert in distressed companies. In that case, he should have brought the Browns and given Jimmy the Panthers. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, Tepper also, as I mentioned, he's he's taken over Carolina. Then he succeeds Jerry Richardson, who's been the only owner of that club. And, and he was one of the commissioners, and I mean commissioners as in plural, Paul Tagliabue and Roger Goodell. He was a part of their inner circle. So um, I guess I will ask you guys the same question I asked you in the first hour about Chuck Knox. Jerry Richardson isn't dead, but he's gone as the owner of the Carolina Panthers. What's his legacy? Goose, I'll start with you. What's the legacy of Jerry Richardson and the Carolina Panthers? It's a sad one. He's a good football player and an even better owner who leaves the game under a shadow. And that shadow hovers over all the good that he did for the NFL on and off the field. Yeah, you know, and Goose, I think that's unfortunate because you're right. He did do a lot of good, and yet what's going to be mentioned in the third or fourth graph of his obituary someday, hopefully long, long in the future, is how he left that team. Sad. Very, very sad. Yeah, you know, that's true, but I think people are also going to, you know, remember him as time passes. It. You know, he's the first ex-player since George Halas to own an NFL franchise, and, and the irony to me is he quit pro football in 1960 because the uh, – the Colts wouldn't give a Rosen, Carol Rosen wouldn't give him a raise, and he used his fifty-nine bonus money to buy the uh, Hardy's franchise. Next thing you knew, he owned the company, and then he owned the Panthers. Then after he owned the Panthers, what's he do? He turns around and he's a driving force in the lockout. He don't want to play the pay the players, you know. What goes around comes around in life. <laughs> so, Ron, what's his better achievement? The Panthers or Hardy's? Oh, Hardy's, I man. Had those Hardy's were tremendous. Those Charborough burgers, those yeah. were. But the guy went from, like, one burger joint into, you know, 500 franchises, and then he owned the company. I mean, it's an unbelievable story. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Goose, if if you own Hardee's, if you own McDonald's, why would you go into pro football? I would never go into pro football. I wouldn't either. No. You get all the burgers you could eat. (laughs) You could could have fun with that. Hardee's is open every day. The NFL is open 10 days a season. Yeah, uh, I, I just think, as I said, I, I think it's sort of sad the way he left under a cloud of, um, I, I don't know, um, it just wasn't under a cloud, I guess I'll just say. Um, and, Although, and you know, no one, you know, no one really knows what happened, Ron. No that's what I was going to really say. Yeah, it's like he is, there's no question, he is under a cloud, but then you say a cloud of doing what? You know, well, that's why like I, I hesitated, because I went cloud yeah. of and went, he just, he just resigned, and you know, he said, well, okay, it's because of this, and I, I'm not really sure what it was because of. No one really said. Um so it's not certainly, um, you know, in his in his advantage or to his advantage as this was mentioned, but it is to his advantage. We don't know what the heck it was. I, I mean, right. so I remember him as a great owner, honestly, of a pretty good franchise. Yeah, no, you're right. It's just it is. It was a weird sort of deal, you know. I mean, as a guy is in, you know, being judged by and look, we don't know exactly what it was, but from what little we have heard, that part of it sounded like a guy being judged by. Rules that didn't apply for most of his life. Suddenly he was in yeah, a different game. He didn't, yeah. he didn't know Sad. what to do. Yeah. Well, it's going to be tough to replace Jerry Richardson, but I'll tell you what. Nobody, and I mean nobody's going to replace their own doctor data. That'd be A.K. Rick, sorry, Rick Goslin, who always has something to say about what's going on in the NFL. So, Rick Goslin, Goose, what's going on in the NFL? Well, Des Bryant has the stats any NFL team would want on its flank. He led the NFL in touchdown receptions with 16 in 2014 and, at 29 years of age, already owns the franchise record for the Dallas Cowboys with 73 career-receiving touchdowns. What he doesn't own is a job. 
If you watch the Amazon Prime series All or Nothing, which followed the Dallas Cowboys to the 2017 season, you see the problem. Emotional, volatile, disruptive. No matter how many passes a quarterback throws, Bryant, it's not enough. He had a great rapport with Tony Romo, whose passes produced three 1,000-yard seasons for Bryant and sent him to three Pro Bowls. But he lacked that rapport with the quarterback who replaced Romo, Dak Prescott. Bryant caught 88 passes for 1,300 yards in those 16 TDs in a contract year in 2014. The Cowboys rewarded him with a five-year, $70 million contract with $45 million of it guaranteed. But Bryant hasn't been the same receiver since signing his name on the dotted line. In the last three seasons combined, he has caught only 17 touchdown passes. He hasn't had a 1,000-yard season, and he hasn't been back to a Pro Bowl. He also led the league in drop passes last season. But he's only 29, and the receiver-needy Baltimore Ravens jumped right in and offered him a three-year contract upon his release from the Cowboys. But Bryant turned it down. He wants a one-year deal with hopes for rebuilding his draft stock, his stock for a much bigger payday in 2019. But NFL teams are not lining up to sign him. His inconsistent hands and failure to separate have given NFL teams pause. He's never been a speed guy. He plays his best football after the catch when he can use his size to break tackles. But now the salary cap dollars are few. Teams have also filled needs with draft picks. And Dez is still out of work. We ran a poll on our Talk of Fame Network website this week asking where Dez plays next. The Green Bay Packers won the vote. Bryant can only hope the Packers have an interest. Too bad for him. A day later, the Packers said, no, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) See, here's what I'm wondering. Is Des Bryant a chain letter waiting to happen? Is some guy's going to end up holding it with no place to send it? Yeah, I think uh, he probably should have taken that Baltimore contract. I, I don't know. Like I said, the salary cap dollars are, are few, and teams have drafted receivers, and you know, I, I don't think he's going to get the deal he was hoping to get on the street. So you said emotional, disruptive, and never satisfied. I thought you were talking about T.O. I didn't think you were talking about Des Bryant. Anyway, we put T.O. in the Hall of Fame. Anyway, that's going to do it for today's Des Bryant lesson. Up next... Former Hall of Fame voter Randy Kovitz. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we promised you former Hall of Fame voter and longtime Kansas City star beat writer Randy Kovitz from Kansas City. And guess what? He's here with us right now as part of our best not in Kansas series where we stop in all 32 NFL cities and visit with past and present Hall of Fame voters about the most glaring omissions from their towns. So Randy's that guy today, and it makes perfect sense. He spent four years on the Chiefs beat in the 1980s with our Rick Goslin and knows the club almost as well as the Hunt family, or our Rick Goslin. Randy, welcome to the show. Hey, my pleasure to be here. Good talking with you. Hey, Randy, having spent 13 years in Kansas City myself, I've got an opinion on this, but who do you think is Kansas City's most glaring omission from Canton? Well, probably the most glaring omission is safety, Johnny Robinson. Uh, My kind of personal pet peeve is is Otis Taylor, and we could talk about that, but but to be totally objective, I mean, Johnny's on the all-AFL team that the Hall of Fame uh, picked. He's the third leading interceptor uh, in, in the league's history. He's a guy that led both leagues with 10 interceptions in different years. Um, an interesting stat is when he intercepted a pass, the Texans' Chiefs were 35-1-1. One and one. and he, was, wow. he was the quarterback of that defense. And, 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 and one other funny note is 
you know, back in the old AFL days when the rosters were 33 players, guys had to play both ways, and Johnny was a, a heck of an offensive player. He, he rushed for 658 yards, uh, six touchdowns, and he caught 77 passes as an offensive player with nine touchdowns. And so, I mean, he played both sides of the ball. He was a smart player and had a nose for the ball. And, and I guess glaring, that's the word I'd say Johnny Robinson. Well, of course, you mentioned another guy who was a, we're all a big fan of, it's mm-hmm. Otis Taylor. Um, what do you think has kept him out, and do you see any way to resurrect him? Uh, uh, well, the problem what's kept him out, frankly, are just numbers, uh, just 410 career catches. Uh, what you have to understand, although they average 17.8 yards a catch, um, what, what, you have, what, what people don't understand is the Chiefs built, were built in those years on the running game and the kicking game and defense and then offense. And, but Otis, you know, he was the first of his kind. I mean, there were big receivers and, and there were fast receivers, but he was the first guy who really combined, uh, the power that was a power receiver, and in an era when defenders can beat on you, hammer you, uh, clothesline you, I mean, there was no, you know, uh, non contact coming downfield. Uh, and my other little thing is Len Dawson's in the Hall of Fame, well deserved, but they got like six defensive guys from that team, and Len's the only offensive guy, and he had to be throwing the ball to someone, and, and, and Otis was the man, and He's got the signature uh, Super Bowl catch, but also had other big catches and big games to get him there. And but I, I think that the thing is, people with with the inflated numbers and in receiving now, just you know, don't forget they also played 14 game seasons. So if they played 16, you know, the number would be higher. So I think that's it. That they look at that number 410, and that probably is a, a factor against them. Well, Randy, I'm glad you mentioned those offensive players who are deserving of Canton because Johnny Robinson and Otis Taylor, of course, as you know, they're not the only oversights. Right. Jim Tyrer, Ed Buddy, Fred Arbanis, Gerald Wilson. They were all named to the all-all-AFL team. Only Jim Tyrer has ever been in the room as a finalist. He's the only guy. So do you think there's been a Canton prejudice against the AFL in general? No, I really don't. I think there's a little bit, but I think the Raiders, there's enough Raiders in there. So, so, and, you know, even a team like the Houston Oilers have a lot of guys, you know, for a team that, that, you know, never won a Super Bowl or anything like that. So there might be a, maybe from some of the old line guys that were in the room and you know who they are and were. Uh, but I, I don't think so much. I think, you know what? It really comes down to one game. If the Chiefs win that 71 double overtime game against Miami where they totally were the better team, they go on to another Super Bowl. I think they win the next week. They beat Baltimore and they go play. And if that team got the third Super Bowl in a six-year period, I think there'd be more Hall of Famers like there are from the Raiders and the Steelers and the Dolphins. I, I just think that, I just think they needed one more, uh, one more Super Bowl, uh, to have gotten guys like Buddy and and, and, and Jim Tyrer in. But, Randy, in that game, we put in the kicker who missed the field goals for Kansas City. We put him in, so it didn't keep Absolutely. him from going. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, he had a heck of a body of work. And, and he was also, Jan Stenerud was also uh, an innovator. I mean, 
the Gogolaks were before him, but he was the first great soccer style kicker, and and so many kickers followed in his footsteps, uh, literally. I'll tell you, when Ray Guy was inducted, people scoffed at my suggestion that Wilson, you know, may have been better. I mean, Guy was deserving, but, uh, you know, if people are going to start saying Shane Leckler in a few years, then I'll be mad. <laughs> Wilson <laughs> kicked in a lot of bad weather. He had an unbelievable Super Bowl game. If you look back, 46 and a half yards, I think still the record for a Super Bowl for a punter. And he, like Stenerud, really dictated field position in that Super Bowl. And Gerald Wilson, like Johnny Robinson, he played running back. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I, I think Gerald Wilson is somebody that people just really don't realize how good he was. Randy, Billy Shaw and Ed Buddy were the two guards voted to the all-time AFL team. Shaw's and Shrine and Canton. Buddy's never been discussed. What has the selection committee missed on Buddy's resume? Well, I think it's well, well two things. In my opinion, as you know from, from, from our representing guys, it's hard to get guards in. <laughs> and Shaw got in, and maybe he filled that, 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 that quota. I, I, you know, guards are just kind of hard to define. And once Billy Shaw got in, well... You know, and Upshaw's in, and well, those are those guards from the AFL. You know, we've taken care of them. I, I think maybe maybe that's a factor. I mean, there's no reason a guy like you know Buddy uh, wouldn't be a, a, a worthy candidate. And you know, you mentioned Tyra for a second, and you know, he unfortunately uh, ended his life. And I just kind of think after that, maybe some out of sight, out of mind. Uh, you know, in, in his case. Yeah, speaking of guards, I for the longest time I thought Will Shields was going to join him in the senior pool. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, he still had a few more years to go, but as, as you know, these classes are going to get tougher and tougher. So, you know, he got in at the right time. You had a guy in Gerald Wilson who was the only punter in history uh, to lead the league five times. Now, granted, there's only one pure punter in the hall, as we mentioned, the guy who really supplanted Wilson uh, as the AFC's premier punter. Uh, what do you think the – selection committee is missing about Gerald Wilson, and do you think that there's any way that we can get a second punter in there? Well, that's the whole key. I mean, uh, you know, look how long it took to after Jan Stenerud got in. I mean, Morton Anderson, you know, the all-time leading uh, scorer in NFL history, finally got in almost like Will Shields. The timing was just right. Had he not gotten in that year, it might have got tougher. Uh, and we know Venetary is going to be the next specialist to get in. So how long are people going to say, well, Ray Guy's in, he was a punter, we've taken care of that. I, I just think that's going to be the hard and difficult hurdle. Uh, but hopefully, you know, through the senior uh, and getting two seniors a year now, or every other year in, maybe that, maybe that could help Gerald Wilson. But I, I, I just think as, as time goes, uh, the longer it goes, the harder it's going to get. Do you think he belongs, Randy? Do I think Gerald? Yes, that's what I'm saying. I think yeah. when Ray Guy got in, I couldn't, I couldn't disagree with Ray Guy. But I think, again, I think a Gerald Wilson should have got in first uh, ahead of a Ray Guy because because of you know we talked about before. You mentioned leading the league five times. I mentioned the the Super Bowl uh, uh, record and and his longevity. Uh, yes, uh, I definitely think he should be in. 
Hey, hey, Ronnie, I, I want to congratulate you, by the way, on uh, keeping your composure when you said you thought Gerald Wilson was a better punter than Ray Guy. I, I thought we'd have to pack in ice. There. Well, you know, I, I, some things I just shrug my shoulders and say, oh, well, yeah, they have to say these things. They live in other places. <laughs> hey, Randy, I want to ask about one other guy, and that's Albert sure. Lewis. Um, yeah. Dr. Z, Paul Zimmerman of Sports Illustrated. Yeah. He was a big fan of his. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he played in that secondary in the 80s that featured four Pro Bowlers, yet no playoff wins. Yep. Uh, yet he was also a great kick blocker, one of the best in game's history. How do you get his candidacy jump started? Because he seems to be forgotten, too, and, and headed for the senior poll. Well, Albert Lewis is one of those guys, and Rick will attest to, that you had to see every day to really appreciate. And he wasn't a big, big, it could be because they didn't throw his way, but he really wasn't a, a big, big interception guy. And so, of course, that's the number that, that, that people gravitate to. Uh, and you mentioned the 80s. Well, no, super, no, no playoff wins, only one playoff game, you know, in the 80s. There was a lot of bad football, uh, although he did play with uh, Marty's uh, teams in the, in the early 90s. So he got in a couple of playoff games in the early 90s, but, but maybe just one win. So uh, I, I, you know, I think because he doesn't have that great interception number, yes, he was a brilliant uh, uh, kick blocker. But, uh, you know, again, now you got the Steve Tasker argument. Does a guy get in for special teams? And, and I don't know. I, I just think Albert just didn't play with a lot of pizzazz. He was just, he was just, in the right place all the time, and and uh, was a was a beautiful athlete to watch. He had like r- thoroughbred uh, racehorse legs. I mean, he was he 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 was uh, really worthy too. But you know, like when you sit in that room every year, Clark, man, it's hard, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's hard. That's right. It is hard, uh, Randy. It's also hard to say goodbye to, but we're out of okay. time. Thanks so much. And oh, by the way, we got a request for you. Next time you get over to Bryant. Send the Talk of Fame Network a care package, would you? We will, we will do that. We'll put it on Burnt dry end. ice and send it. Okay. Burnt end. Thank you. Thanks, Randy. Okay. Thanks, Randy. Thanks, Randy. Thanks, Randy. That was former Hall of Fame voter Randy Kovitz. Up next is New England defensive back Jason McCourty. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, Jason McCourty is half of one of the most unusual combinations in NFL history. A set of twins, both playing in the NFL. Now, that's happened only 13 times in the game's history. And this season, the McCourty brothers will form the most unique of those tandems, very likely starting in the same defensive backfield for the New England Patriots. Now, Jason, your brother has been a regular visitor here with the Talk of Fame Network, and we are glad and delighted that you've now joined him in our lineup. <laughs> I appreciate you guys for having me. Uh, Jason, a year ago you suffered through an 0-16 season in, in Cleveland, as, as you know better than anyone else. Now here you are with a team that's been to the Super Bowl three of the past four years and won twice. Did it feel like you got handed a get-out-of-jail-free card like in Monopoly when you heard that you'd been traded to New England? Uh, you know, I, I guess I, I try not to look at it like that. I feel like everything happens for a reason. You know, uh, last year through all the adversity and turmoil, I uh, was able to learn a great deal. And, uh, but at this point, just really excited for the opportunity that lies ahead. Uh, you guys already said it, just the opportunity uh, to play alongside my brother. 
at the professional level for us is a dream come true and uh, just really excited to be a part of the Patriots organization. Just uh, obviously with Deb being here the past eight seasons, I followed him very closely uh, with the success that uh, he's had and the team's had. So uh, just really, uh, I guess uh, I would say excited and uh, humbled to be a part of this organization. What has your brother told you about playing for Bill Belichick, who him, himself says, I'm not the easiest coach to play for? <laughs> uh, he, I, I guess I've heard a, a lot over the years uh, just about uh, playing here, and that's kind of helped me a lot with the transition of kind of knowing what to expect. Uh, but he's trying to say, you know, like anybody, a player has played for somebody, uh, he's learned a great deal from him. Uh, obviously, he's been able to have a lot of success here. And uh, I think for me, just watching Deb and talking to him over the years and seeing how much he's grown, uh, he really believes the things that they do here are the right way uh, to go about things. It's hard to argue uh, with the amount of success they've had. So uh, I would say probably the main thing I've learned uh, from him over the years is just trusting Bill uh, just as a player that's been on the team. Uh, he believes Cole Harley and what they do here and how they go about it. So you trust in Bill. Do you trust in your brother? <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. I may have to go to I may have to go to Bill and double check some of Dad's facts or some of the stories that he's told me over the years. <laughs> <laughs> well, your brother, of course, he was the first round pick of the Patriots in 2010. While you were ignored by the combine and then taken in the sixth round, and yet you've had success as much as your brother. So, just wondering, how has that experience shaped your attitude towards your profession? Uh, I think for me, when you go in late rounder, you just always have that chip on your shoulder. And at the end of the day, every team, including Tennessee, who drafted me uh, 203rd, everybody passed on you a few times. And I think uh, for me, that kind of fueled me over the years. You paid attention to every every cornerback that was drafted before you uh, throughout the, uh, your process. You've always tried to outperform those guys. and. I think for me, that's just always been in the back of my mind, uh, starting, like you said, with not being invited to the combine of wanting to make sure I had a good pro day and then getting drafted at the end of the sixth round of just trying to make it to a second contract before guys or trying to play outplay guys on the field, trying to last longer than them in the league. I think all of those things just continue to go through your head when you're a late rounder and you're just always trying to prove people wrong. Did not be invited to the combine, uh, Jason. Did that shock you? I mean, just uh, God, they got three hundred something guys there. I mean, it's, was it shocking to realize you're a guy who runs a four three and you're not, and you've been starting at Rutgers for a couple of years and you're not going to be at the combine? Um, I would say it was a little disappointing, but at the time, uh, you're so young in the process, you really don't know or understand what uh, a lot of it means. At, at the time, it was disappointing because you look at it and you just think that everybody goes. I had uh, my college teammates that were all going. Uh, so at the time, it was disappointing. But then uh, just talking to my agent at the time, he was just like, hey, there's been plenty of guys that haven't been invited that still get drafted and that long story. So I think at that point, I was just focused and put all my effort into the training uh, to make sure that if I wasn't going to get a chance to show at the combine that when I got my opportunity, I gave people, gave people a, a reason to take a second look at me. Did you feel a lot of pressure on on pro day, knowing this was you know this was your one shot, your one audition? When you had to get down there and run that forty, were you feeling a lot of pressure, or were you more sort of elated by here's my chance? No, I think you're definitely feeling a lot of pressure. I think that goes for guys at pro day, guys at the combine. Uh, it's just that when you think about it, um, you play football, and you've had a dream to play professional your whole life. 
and it's all coming down to either if you got the pro day and combine a two or three day interview and that's it. So I think there's a lot of pressure either way. Uh, but definitely my pro day was late in March. So, uh, a lot of people had already ran. A lot of people uh, have performed and it's coming down to it. And it's, it's one day you, you can't be sick. You can't trip. Uh, and that's just part of it. So I guess, uh, definitely a lot of pressure when it came down to it. Jason, okay. Speaking of 40s, Devin ran a 4.38 in his 40. You ran a 4.3 at Rutgers at your pro day. Now you're both 30. You've been starters for nearly a decade. If there was a foot race with lunch 40 yards away, who'd win a foot race between two guys who ran 4.3s? Uh, between me and Dev, oh, I'm winning that all day. and uh, We'll argue all day about it, but uh, my argument to him is just all you got to do is Google it and go back and look at who ran faster, and it just shows who was winning the race. <laughs> hey, Jason, you know, brothers tend to be pretty heated rivals, and even more so with twins. I was a heated rival with my brother, but he was a year older. We weren't twins. Yet Devin credits you for helping him to become the player he is. How difficult was it for you to watch his team go into the playoffs every year while yours, well, often followed a more difficult path, especially last year in Cleveland? Yeah, uh, I think uh, I, I talked about this a little earlier. There's definitely uh, some professional envy, uh, and I think it goes not only, uh, like you just said, with the fact that we're twin brothers, so you have somebody that you're so close to and you're seeing them go through that process, but I think not only for him but just a lot of guys that you're watching playing. Uh, you, I've been on teams where we finished 9-7 and seven and just missed the playoffs, and you're probably watching on a Saturday or Sunday the team that just got in before you and you might have played that team and beaten them, and you're watching them have success in the playoffs, and you're mad because you think you should be there. And I think it's the same way as I'm watching my brother. I'm just like, man, I think I should be there. And that's just part of the process. When you haven't had that type of team success, uh, it comes with it, those frustrations. But those are some of the things that motivate you to try to continue to get better in the offseason and keep pushing. When you were going through last season, I mean, 0 16 has got to be really difficult. I don't care how much of a pro you are. There has to be a point where it was pretty tough on Hugh Jackson, pretty tough on everybody. How does how do you get through? It's easy. I would think it's a lot easier to get through a season that you, you end up in the in the Super Bowl. Uh, how did you get through that season and maintain your sort of professionalism and, and keep functioning? I, I think yeah, I think the way you do it is you rely on the guys in the locker room next to you. Uh, that was the one that was the one thing I walked away with last year. Uh, in that year in Cleveland was just the, the bonds and the relationship that I was able to build with uh, some of my teammates. Uh, obviously, having uh, Danny Shelton here, was, he was actually a guy whose locker was right next to me in Cleveland. Uh, so it was pretty cool uh, for us now to be here in the England together. But I think that was the single thing that pushed me in. Obviously, me as a nine-year vet, I was uh, probably, I think I was the second oldest guy on the team. So a lot of the guys were coming to me in different moments for advice or uh, asking me certain questions. And that kind of kept me going because that's kind of the enjoyment you get. I know when I came out as a young guy, I had some really good veterans ahead of me that helped me get to where I'm at today. So that was one of the, that was probably the single factor that kept me going and kept me being professional is just knowing that there were younger guys looking to me to be that guidance and to show them how you're supposed to act in an adverse situation. Jason, you've picked off Eli Manning and Joe Flacco, a couple of Super Bowl MVPs. You picked off Alex Smith, who doesn't throw interceptions. You looking forward to picking off Tom Brady in practice? <laughs> uh, 
I think when you're, when you're going against the GOAT, you're always going to be excited uh, to do anything against him. Uh, I remember uh, hearing Logan Ryan talk about uh, picking him off practice and being excited and talking trash. And I think that's anybody on defense that's a goal that you always want to have. I, I was never able to get him uh, in, in real competition. So you definitely want to you want to challenge yourself and put yourself up against the best. And there's nobody that you can say better at the position. Um, Hey, Jason, I want to go back to Ron's question about Cleveland, and, and you're saying guys, young guys have come to you for advice. What did you tell them, especially as the season wore on? I mean, the guys are trying to show up for a win, and you're not winning as the season's going on. People talk about you could go 0-16. How do you prepare each or tell a guy to prepare each day to try to win when, in fact, you're not going to win anything? It's tough. Uh, I heard Joe Thomas say uh, in the interview, I think it was at the end of the season, and uh, he talked about just what we went through last year. It's kind of the definition of insanity uh, when you continue to do the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Because as you guys know, in our league, uh, typically every Tuesday is your off day. Monday is you come in and watch the film. Wednesday through Friday is your work day. You practice and you get ready, and you do the same thing over and over again after a loss, after a win, whatever, and plus it was continually after losses and you get to the point where you're really trying to figure out why you're continuing to do the same thing. But my advice to those guys is something that Greg Williams used to say to us constantly every day is an interview. And the one thing you know that when you're not winning, there's going to be a ton of change at the end of of the season and you want to make sure that you're positioning yourself uh, the best way you can to be able uh, to continue to have a job in this league. So uh, that was my thing to guys. It doesn't matter what you're going through. you got to make sure you're performing the way you need to perform. Did you go to the Super Bowls your brother played in? Uh, what was that? Did you go to the Super Bowls that your brother's brother played in? Yeah. So, yeah, I've been to, uh, I've been to uh, all of the cities, I guess I'll say. I went to uh, the actual game the first year he went, the game in Indianapolis when they lost. And, uh, by the time he made it back again, we have realized that every time we attended one of each other's games, uh, it didn't end the way we wanted it to end. So uh, the Arizona game, I went, I went out to Arizona, but I didn't go to the actual game. I was able to get to the stadium towards the end and go down on the field with him after the game. And then uh, the one in Houston, I was, at, uh, I was in Houston with him and the family, but didn't go to the actual game. Jason McCordy, thanks so much for spending time with us. And uh, maybe this season we can get both you and your brother on together. How about that? Yeah, yeah, we'll have to figure that out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> thanks, thanks so much, Jason. Jason. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. it. Got it. That was New England defensive back Jason McCordy. Up next, two-minute drill. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Whoever needs a whistleblower, and we have one right here. That's the two-minute drill. Yep, that means all that's left today is the two-minute drill. So, Ron, let's get going. The NFL denied Mike Jones' request to use marijuana as a prescribed painkiller rather than the opiates he became addicted to in the NFL. Makes sense to you? No, it doesn't. Not with the stash reserved for him under his initials, MJ. <laughs> Make an exception for one. Make an exception for all. It's your Clearly, the NFL does not want to travel. The NFL must be in denial all around. It also denied the Rams' request to play more games in their Eric Dickerson-era blue and yellow jerseys because the fans love them. 
What's that all about? The same stupidity that prevents the Chargers from going back to their powder blues. The league prefers the Rams to wear the Roman Gabriel blue and white. Browns coach Hugh Jackson intends to make good on his promise to jump in the lake if his team went 1-15. Should he have used the 0-16 loophole to avoid a dip in Lake Erie? No, but he better not make that promise again, Ron. Otherwise, he'll have to add Michael Phelps to his coaching staff. (laughs) 0-15 is Lake Erie. 0-16 should be the Atlantic Ocean. Ichiro Suzuki, the future Baseball Hall of Famer, got a text from an unknown guy asking to t- if he could talk to him about his stretching routine. When a coach asked him who it was, he said, Who the bleep is Tom Brady? Is that focus or blindness? Neither. It's a disgruntled Seahawks fan. It means it's time for the NFL to end a 15-year absence from Japan and stage another Tokyo Bowl. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, jeez. Carson Wentz and his fiance got matching tattoos to celebrate their engagement. What do you and your wife share? Matching rockers. Bills, bills, bills. <laughs> Ouch. The Panthers, have, uh, the Panthers have three open roster spots and 28 free agents trying out. Are walk-ons returning to the NFL, or is this a waste of time? Well, apparently not. They're walking in in Carolina. Kurt Warner, Wes Walker, Tony Romo, walk-ins never left. Lions offensive lineman Emmett Clary retired at 27 to go to UC, uh, USC Medical School, saying he didn't want to keep scrambling to hold on to an NFL job. Will he qualify for a student loan? He better. It's USC and it's med school. As an undrafted player who spent two years in a practice squad with four teams before suiting up for only 20 games, yes. Giants coach Pat Shermer has told linebacker Landon Collins not to continue commenting on missing Eric Flowers, who Collins claims isn't at OTAs because his feelings are hurt. Didn't Shermer just hurt Collins' feelings? I've been told not to comment on it, Ron. Giants should concern themselves with hurt bodies, not feelings. That's the end of the game. We'd like to thank Ron Dane, Jason McCordy, Randy Kovitz, and Rick Smith for joining us, Robert Harris Jr. for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, www.talkoffamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. We'll be here. We hope you will be, too. Oh, 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 oh,